I'll be reading John 4, verses 43 through 46. This is God's word. After the two days, he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. Right. Our Father, we thank you for this wonderful day that we can again gather and study your word. May our hearts and minds be enlightened by your words these day, this day. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, this week on Thursday, June 6th, we all saw that the world celebrated the 75th anniversary of Operation Overlord, when the Allied troops of the American armies and British and Australians and others took their ships and their planes from England south across the English Channel to the beaches of Normandy. And as they did this, you saw the, 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 the stories, the, the, the pain, the death that occurred there. And then we saw this week a number of veterans who were also alive, still survivors of Normandy. There are very few of them now. Now let me ask, how many of you had relatives or somebody you knew on Normandy, at the beaches of Normandy? All of us have known somebody in World War II, I'm sure. I actually had a relative who was involved with uh, the Operation Overlord. He was uh, the supreme commander of the Allied troops, Dwight Eisenhower. Now, he's a second cousin to me, eight times removed, which means he's a second cousin seven times removed from my mom. But Dwight Eisenhower was the one who commanded and, and set this out and made this plan go. And when he did, the night before the execution of it, he wrote a letter in which he envisioned what he would say if this failed. He wrote a letter that said, the troops did the best they could. They fought bravely. It's all my fault. Knowing that if we failed in this Operation Overlord, the troops would have to be pulled back to England and Hitler would be left with the continent of Europe again. And Eisenhower knew that if we don't take Europe now, they may never. The will of the American people may break and there may never be another strong move to move back into Europe. It took years to plan and execute this plan. It may take years more before they could do it again. And so this was a weight on Eisenhower's mind, certainly on all Americans, knowing that this is coming. Of course, we know the celebrations were because it was successful and the Allied troops took the beaches. This is really something of a picture of what's going on in the Gospels. We have Jesus himself who comes down from heaven now, invading this earth. The story of the Gospels are a story about Jesus coming to this earth as the Messiah, offering himself as a Messiah, establishing a beachhead in this world as he now invades this world. The Gospels are about this moral battle in the universe where Jesus is now coming as the Messiah as promised in the Old Testament. And so going back to the Old Testament, there's a story there that tells us of a new Messiah coming. And the Jews had in their own mind what the Messiah might be, and we'll see what that is today. But Jesus came as the one who established his beachhead. And so this week we saw President Trump, we saw President Macron of France expressing gratitude for what 
the Americans had done. We saw uh, the Queen, uh, uh, Queen Elizabeth and Prince Charles and Prime Minister May there together celebrating but remembering the great battle that was won on the beaches of Normandy and throughout that next following year. And that's what we do here as well. We remember the great battle that Jesus has fought on our behalf as he came to this earth. And so these stories of the Gospels are really a story about that. God invading this earth again with his kingdom. And the Gospels are telling us all about this. Now when we come to the Gospel of John, we see that the Gospel of John is set up in terms of signs. That John is giving us signs in the life of Jesus that point to him as the Messiah. Now, what does a sign do? A sign is not the object. A sign is a pointer to somewhere else. Now, I know when people come to Colorado, they cross the, Texas, the Kansas border out there out east, and they see that big, beautiful sign that says, Colorful Colorado. And a lot of times people want to stop there and take a picture by the sign. But hopefully they, well, we wish now that they would turn around and go back. But... What they do instead is they keep coming on, right? Because that sign out in the eastern plains is not colorful Colorado. It's further in. The sign is a pointer to something else, something greater. And all of these signs we see in the Gospel of John are pointers to something else. And so in John chapter 2, where we have the water turned to wine, we saw that as a sign that Jesus is now purifying through himself. It's not the Jewish purification system, but it said instead it's Jesus himself. We see that in the temporal action of Jesus. And then we come now to this passage today in John chapter 4. And John chapter 4 at the end and John chapter 5 at the beginning, we have two additional stories of Jesus' action. His uh, two more signs. So this is signs 3 and 4. And so let's take a look now at uh, verse 46. And he came again to Cana in Galilee where he had made water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. And this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee. He went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. And the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, one o'clock in the afternoon, the fever left him. The father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come down from Judea to Galilee. This is the second sign in Cana. You remember in chapter 2, we started in Cana of Galilee. In chapter 4, we end in Cana. And so scholars call this the Cana cycle. We have this little circle where it begins and ends back in Cana again. And in between, we have this travel to Jerusalem, the action of the temple, his moving back north through Samaria, where he encounters a Samaritan woman at Sakaar, and then back into Cana again. With this, we see Jesus on the road there, and there's this official, as the, English, the ESV states it, the Greek word is basilikos, and this is the idea of someone who has some sort of royal connection. Now, in Judea, after the death of King Herod, Archelaus was removed when Jesus was a young boy, about 10 years old, and so it was now a, a Roman province governed directly by the Romans from Syria. But up in Galilee, further away, 
past Samaria, north into Galilee. This was still something of a little kingdom left, by, left to uh, Herod's son, Antipur. So Herod Antipur is now running this little area of Galilee. And this royal official comes to him. So undoubtedly he is in some way tied to the house or the kingdom of Herod Antipur, the son of Herod the Great. And he comes to Jesus now with this request saying, my son is ill. And when it says he's ill, even to the point of death, it means that he's, he's nearly to die. And in the ancient world, of course, when somebody became so sick, it became obvious they're not going to survive. And this official believed that his son would in fact die unless Jesus did intervene, unless Jesus did something. And so he comes to Jesus with this request. He sees him and he says to him, uh, uh, ask Jesus to heal his son. And what does Jesus then do? He says in verse uh, 46, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. This is common in the Gospels where a story is told, a healing story, where somebody comes to Jesus and makes a request, and then Jesus gives something of a, a negative answer to it. You remember in John chapter 2, Mary came saying, they're out of wine? Jesus said, what is that to you and to me? What concern is that to me? So Jesus is often just sort of doing this little move where he's putting them off, inquiring further about what they're really asking for. And so he says to this official, he says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And this becomes the problem that John now sees. Now, remember, we talk about understanding these passages in their context. The stories we read the Gospel of John happen in about the year 30, 31, 32, in those years. Uh, that's when they happen. When John writes about them, however, he's writing about them perhaps 50 or 60 years later, about the year 90. So we have to, in our mind, ask ourselves, what was the story about in its first instance when it occurred? And what is John now doing with that story 60 years later when he's retelling it to a church that's very different now? Jerusalem's now been destroyed. The church has been scattered. And there's now a lot more going on in the Christian world as it gets its, uh, launches its new start. What John is doing here in this story is reminding us that the signs are not the point, that Jesus was the point. And it's often the case that people are looking for signs. And by looking for a sign, unless you see something that benefits you directly, it's in the world's nature, it's in our nature to say we need God to do something for us. This, this royal official, Basilikos, comes to Jesus, my son is ill, Jesus asks him and says, you're, all, you're a part of the generation that's only looking for signs. And when he says you, he's saying you are, all are. It's plural in Greek. So he's now talking to the Galileans in general. All of you Galileans are looking for signs. You're looking for some benefit. By now, Jesus has spent a year or so ministering, and he's got a reputation. People are looking to him as something of a miracle worker. And there were others in this generation that purported to do such things. They were looking for what they could get from Jesus. Now, a lot of times, even in our own Christian lives, what do we do? We look to Jesus and we, we have struggles, whether it's financial or health or whatever it may be. And we say, oh, Lord, if you'll just help me get this job, that's all I'll ever ask. That's all I'll ever need. Just get me this job. That's all I want. Or give me this good mark. Give me this good grade. Or, Lord, I pray, please give me this good report on my health. That's all I'll ever ask for. That's all I want. And if you said that to Jesus face to face, I could imagine him looking at you and saying, really? That's all you want from me? is this little job or this little benefit. That's all you want from Jesus. What John is saying is that there's so much more he offers. 
How dare you ask for so little? How dare you ask for simply a job when he's offering you his life and himself in such a grand way? That's what John is getting at in this story. And he's condemning, showing that the Gentiles or many of these Galileans are looking for signs, are looking for benefits without looking to the true nature of who Jesus is and what he was offering to them. And so in our own churches, how do we respond? We live in a world where people are looking for things. And a lot of churches have found you can grow a large congregation, maybe not a believers, but you can grow a large congregation if you offer sermons that offer good practical advice on how to handle your finances or how to deal with relationships. And that's all they talk about. And while all of those things in themselves are good and fine, they're still missing the point. Is that all you're looking for from Jesus is a little benefit, a little bit of help like that. He's offering so much more. And so this man persists. And the question here is about his faith. Is it simply a sign faith or is it a faith in the true nature of what Jesus who he was and what he did. Remember what Ben spoke last week about the Samaritan woman. He goes to her. She asks some questions. He talks to her and others. But the Samaritans accept Jesus on his word, on who he is. They believe in him without him healing them, without him doing miracles in their presence. They trusted in him. Now, the Samaritans, as Ben reminded us, were sort of the uh, separate outcasts from the Jewish people. They were supposed to be Jews, but kind of separate from the Jews. They were looked down upon because of their mixed heritage going back 600 years. John reminds us that those were some of the first people to believe. And then we have this man. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Again he asks again, and Jesus says, Go, your son will live. So perhaps this man exercised faith in Jesus' Spoken word, go, your son will live. And the word live there that John uses is that same word of real life, deep life. And so this official then goes on his way and finds servants of his coming back towards him who now report that your son, in fact, is better. Now, the distance here is about an eight or nine hour walk, 15, 20 miles away from Capernaum down to Tiberias, where he's probably from. And so some distance away. It would have taken the next day, but the official finds out that his son was healed the very hour that Jesus spoke. And so this is a demonstration of who Jesus is in terms of his miracles as he can perform them remotely with his word. His word has the power. And that's different from the other supposed miracle workers in the first century who would do things and make promises like that, as we'll see in just a moment. Jesus did it remotely. And so the message of this section here is to say that Jesus is God, but more than that, so much more than that, he healed this man's son as a demonstration of this man's faith. But it was really a sign, a sign as we'll talk more about, that God has now come down, bringing his kingdom into this world in Jesus. That's the kingdom of God come down to this world. So as the story concludes, the man goes back and sees that his son was alive, and it says at the end, he and himself believed, and all his household, which was common in that day, the household would accept the religion of the father, we saw this in Acts chapter 10 with Cornelius as they believed, the, fa the family believed. But here we see this first miracle. Jesus heals this royal official's son. One more thing about this royal official. John writes in about the year 90. Between the year 69 and 79, in those de that decade there, the Roman emperor was a man named Vespasian. Vespasian, by now, had himself claimed to be the one that performed miracles. He ascribed miracles to himself so the Romans could now worship him as a god as they did to his grandfather and father before him, going back to Caesar Augustus and, 
and, and, and the rest. When John writes about this royal official, it might be perhaps that he's taking a poke at the eye of those who follow Vespasian, believing now that the Roman uh, emperor was a healer. It's to say, no, the royal official had to come to Jesus for healing. It's not coming to you for healing, but coming to Jesus. And so we see that as his first sign, the second sign now back in Cana, the third overall. When we come now to chapter 5, we see this healing at the pool of Bethesda. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roof colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going under, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. You see how John sets up the story. Now here's the punchline. Now that day was a Sabbath. See how John saved that for the point? That day was a Sabbath. That's the problem. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is a Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed and walk. But he answered the man, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. And in verse 18, we get to this conflict. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now, as we read this story, I want you to keep in mind today and next week that chapter 5 really forms one big unit. This is something of a, a great story being told. It's a story like a great crime lawyer story we might have. We have on the one hand a crime being committed, and that's Jesus healing this man on the Sabbath. Then we have the prosecutors of the Pharisees coming in, leveling two charges at him. One, that he breaks the Sabbath, and two, that he blasphemes by calling himself equal with God. Now, if you look at verse 19 and the rest of the chapter, if you have a red letter edition, you can see it's all in red. This is now Jesus' defense, his explanation about who he is and what he's doing. So we're going to save that for next week with Jeff, but today we're going to talk about what we have here in this crime being committed and what the prosecution's case is really all about. Now, let's just deal with one question, and that's found in uh, chapter 5 and verse 4. So look at chapter 5 and verse 4 real quick. Did you see a problem there? Most of you don't have a verse 4. Let me explain that real quick. If you do, it's in the King James Bible. It has a verse 4. But verse 4 is a verse that was undoubtedly inserted very late in the manuscripts, which explained what this stirring of the water was 
And it said that an angel from God came down and stirred this water for healing. And that's what's going on. Now, what that undoubtedly was, and it's found in some late, late manuscripts a thousand years after they were the originals, it was a scribal insertion in the margin. And when the next guy copied it, they copied it and inserted it in the text. And so there is no, no verse 4. But the point is still the same. Now, we see in this uh, passage again this simple story. Jesus goes back up to Jerusalem. Now, this is quick. Chapter 5 has happened some time. Remember, chapter 4, we just ended the Passover. So he went through Samaria back to Cana. At the end of the Passover, now he's back for another feast in chapter 5. It may be another Passover a year later. It may be one of the other couple of feasts, but Jesus is back in Jerusalem again. And while he's there, there's a, a sheep gate and a pool called Bethesda. Now, archaeologists have found the pool of Bethesda. They've got it there near the north by northwest side of the, of the city of Jerusalem, the old city. The pool where this happened at. And you can see the, the ruins of the five uh, colonnade uh, uh, roofed area there. And there's a story of invalids being uh, placed there, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed, these men. Then there's a story of a man who's 38 years lame. He's laying there, and Jesus comes up and sees him laying there, and then asks the man, asks him the question, do you want to be healed? Now, in that question, Jesus may be asking this man whose mental state might be, I've been an invalid for 38 years, I'm expecting nothing more. But I think there's something more to it than that. Of course, the man is at this pool, believing he may be healed. This is not really a place where people were healed. This is instead a place where uh, the healing cults of the pagan religions might have portrayed it a place where people could be healed. The water may have been uh, what's called living water, purified water, but it's not a place of purification either. And so people may have believed, hoping that somehow they could be healed at this pool of Bethesda. And so the man's there for 38 years. Now, if you remember that the life expectancy is 40 years, this man has lived up nearly his whole life as an invalid, as unable to walk. And, and the, the, the Greek there is paraplegic, uh, one who probably can't use his legs, and so he's uh, crippled this way. And so Jesus asks him if he wants to be healed, and he says, but there's nobody to put me in the pool. And so he's looking for help. So Jesus says to him, get up, take up your bed, and walk. Jesus now heals this man. Now, John tells us he does this on the Sabbath, and that creates a great controversy that is now going to force Jesus into further conflict with the Jews in general, but the Pharisees in particular. And so he tells the man to take up his bed and walk, and the man does. Now, that was the day of the Sabbath. So the, uh, the Jews said to the man, who told you you could be healed and take up your bed and walk? And, Je and this man says, I don't know, some, some guy did that. And now the guy's in the temple area, which is just a couple hundred yards or so away from where the pool might be. Well, then Jesus comes along and finds the guy there and says, ah, oh, there you are. How are you doing? You're doing well. And then the man sees Jesus and goes back to the Jews and says, that's the guy who told me to take up my bed and walk. That's the guy who healed me. Now, the Pharisees here, the Jews, they were not concerned about the healing. They didn't care about that. They didn't believe in that. They don't know. What they cared about was that the man was told to take up his bed and walk on the Sabbath. Now, the Sabbath is important in the Jewish mind, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But keeping the Sabbath is one of the Ten Commandments, and the Pharisees had devised 39 regulations to make sure that you did that. Now, it might be okay to do certain things on the Sabbath, but other things you couldn't. And this would be one, taking up a bed and moving it somewhere. And so the Pharisees are now using this as a way of tracking down Jesus and charging him, basically, of committing a violation of the Sabbath. So that's the first charge we see. They charge him for breaking the Sabbath. 
The second then, when Jesus is talking about it, uh, he says, my father is working until now and I am working. Now, it wasn't unusual to call God father. They did that. The Pharisees, the Jews did. God was recognized as a father. But clearly what Jesus was doing now was saying something very sharp and deep. He's speaking of God as his own father in a unique sense and him being equal with God, working with God on the Sabbath. Now, God, we know, creates in six days and the seventh days is the Sabbath rest. And that's an image we have coming down in the Jewish mind throughout the Old Testament. But the Jews also recognized that God didn't just rest and not do anything, but he continued to actually sustain. And so God was always acting, always engaged with his created universe. But Jesus is saying, I can do this now because I am with God. Now, this is a charge. The Pharisees now level at him, these two charges. And now Jesus in verse 19 is going to give his defense and explain who he is and what he's doing. That we see next week. But for just a moment now, I want to take a, a time to just answer a few questions. And in the handout you have this morning, I listed the seven questions. I'm sorry there's not more room to write answers, but I thought if you at least had the questions, you could follow along with, uh, with what this is. So we have these seven questions, and the, the questions ask the question, why do the Jews want to kill Jesus? And this is such a profound question when you really get down to what's going on. It's a very profound question. When you understand why the Jews wanted to kill Jesus, it, it changes your understanding of what's really going on in the Gospels. So let's ask these seven questions and answer them. First, one, what factors shaped the Jewish worldview in the first century? If you were to take a look at what it was that shaped the worldview of a person in the first century, there's a number of things we have to keep in mind. I'm going to skip through them very quickly because I think you know them well, but just so we tie these things together. First of all, beginning with creation, God creates. God creates the garden where he, God, and humanity would dwell together. What we know from the tabernacle and temple later is that this gives us something of a temple image, that God in creation is creating a temple, a temple being a place where God dwells with his people. But because of sin, there's a fallout now. And so God's house is now infested, corrupted as it were. And so because of that, a new solution is needed. We see the events of Genesis, but they eventually come to chapter 12, where God now chooses Abraham to be the one to whom he makes a covenant. And God makes a covenant with Abraham, saying that I will give you a land. I will make you a great nation and a great people. And that covenant will follow down in the Jewish mind clear up until the time of Jesus. Now, through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the descent down into Egypt, the Jews are in Egypt, but then we have them down there, but God promises and he delivers them through Moses and the Exodus, and out they come, delivered from the Exodus. And the Jewish mind, the covenant God made with Abraham is, is central. The Exodus becomes the story that defines who they were. The Jews always saw the Exodus as being self-defining. God rescues us. And so in the Exodus, they brought out, during the Exodus, we have several feasts that were eventually established. First is Passover, as God delivered his people from the oppression of the Egyptians. And so the Passover feast is celebrated every year in Jerusalem, a reminder that God is our deliverer. And even through its oppression, the Jews never gave up hope that God would deliver them. While in the desert, God protects them in the desert through tents. And so they establish the feast of Sukkot, or tents or tabernacles, a reminder every year the Jews would go to Jerusalem and would pitch tents around the countryside and stay outside, sleep outside at night as a reminder to themselves and to their kids 
that God protected us in the desert while we were out there. And then the Feast of Pentecost was a reminder to look back to that time when God gave the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. And so this third of the great high feast reminded the Jews that God's law, the Torah, was central. And so the Exodus story that God delivers, Pentecost, Tabernacles, and Passover are the central stories that drive the Jewish way of thinking. Of course, God establishes the kingdom through David. We have a king now. We have a land. Things are going well. But with Solomon, the kingdom divides, the north and the south. And that's where the Samaritan comes from, as the Assyrians took the northern tribes away. The southern tribes would go later. So in the year 722 B.C., the northern tribes are carried away. The southern tribes would survive until the Babylonians came in the year 586. That's when the southern kingdom would fall. Now the Jews have a problem. The God who had delivered them now appears to be a God who's gone to the Babylonian side. They've now been forsaken by God. They're now in exile. And so exile becomes a driving metaphor in the minds of the Jewish people. We have been exiled. Why? Because of Deuteronomy 28 and 29, where's the story there that if you obey my law, I'll bless you. If you deny it or reject it, you'll be, uh, suffer the curses and the penalties of it. And so with Deuteronomy 28 and 29, the Jews knew why they were in exile. It's because they had disobeyed God. And when you read the stories uh, of the kingdoms, you see that there's mostly bad kings all in the north, just families taking over. In the southern kingdom, there's the lineage that falls down, but still they've rejected God. So now they find themselves in exile. We have um, stories we as Americans tell ourselves, and we often go back to these stories as a way of finding lessons and things like that in life. But to the Jewish mind, these stories were central to the, who they were. They were character-forming, nation-forming stories. Everything it meant to be a Jew meant it because there was a story behind it. And when you come down as the Old Testament ends, you find the Jews now being delivered by the Persians. The Persians overthrow the Babylonians and send the Jews back to Jerusalem, back to Judea, and give them their land back. But they don't get it free and clear. The Persians are still in control. And while the Babylonians carried countries and peoples away, the Persians decided it's better to govern them in their own homeland. When the Old Testament ends, the Jewish people saw themselves as part of a story that God is working in their lives. But it ends unfinished. And so now the question of the Jewish mind is, how will God finish our story? They still believe that God would deliver. But now they find themselves under Persian control. Well, that lasted until the megalomaniac Alexander the Great in Macedonia comes and conquers the Persians. Well, now the Jews in Jerusalem and Judea saw themselves no longer controlled by the Persians, but now by the Greeks. So Alexander conquers literally the whole known world, clear out to the, uh, the Indian, uh, continent of India. The Jews controlled by the Greeks now. When he dies, Alexander, the Jewish land is divided among the generals of Alexander, the lands are. The Ptolemies from Egypt first control Judea. So the Jews are under the control of the Ptolemies. But then the Seleucid Empire comes and takes over in the year 198 when Antiochus Epiphanes comes down and desecrates the temple, committing sacrilege by sacrificing a pig on the altar and destroying it. Now, if you're a Jew, you've never felt more in exile, more separated from God at that moment than when your temple's been desecrated. The temple was central to everything in the Jewish mind. God gave that temple as a place where he would dwell with them, and now that's being desecrated. And so the Jews, after some years, got together, some of them, and thought that was enough. A man by the name of Judas the Hammer, Judas Maccabeus, 
overthrew the Seleucid Greeks and took back and cleansed the temple. And when he did, for about a hundred years, the Jewish people controlled their own homeland for a short time. What the Jews found was that the Jewish people that controlled Judea at the time were worse than the Syrians were. And so many Jews went back to the Syrian Greeks and said, please, if you come back here and kick out these Jewish leaders, we'd rather have you oppressing us than them. And so there were civil wars going on. At about this time, Greece is falling in power. But uh, who's rising in power? The Romans. Well, the Romans see this as an opportunity, so now they come into the land, and now they're back in exile under the Romans. So Pompey, the great Roman general, in the year 63 comes in and takes over the land. So you're a Jew now. What have you got? You're now being oppressed by the Romans. As that happens now, the Jews see their oppression never ending. The Romans were looking at other lands, and they thought they could kind of leave this to a man named Herod the Great. And so Herod the Great is established as king by Mark Anthony, who was a general with the Romans. But when Mark Anthony and Cleopatra is defeated, Herod the Great would go to Caesar Augustus, Octavian, and say, oh, I'm sorry about lining with them. I'm lining with you now. And so Caesar would say, well, we need somebody with a heavy hand in Judea to control the Jews. And so Herod was put in place. And we all know the stories of Herod. He would die in the year 4 BC, but he was so oppressive, the Jews could hardly stand being under oppressed by him. Now, Herod thought he could gain the Jewish favor by building the temple. And so the second temple that began under Zerubbabel when the Jews came back from Babylonia was now being rebuilt by Herod. And it was a magnificent structure. And in the Jewish mind, this temple was beautiful. It was everything they could ever hope for, except for the fact it was built by Herod, who wasn't a real Jew. He was an Idumean who married into the Hasmonean Jewish family so he could kind of marry into the Jewish family. But most Jews recognized Herod as a bad guy still, and he was. And so when he died in the year 4 BC, there was a Jewish revolt again. And, and, and uh, Jews tried to rise up thinking, now with the dead Herod, we can rise up and take our land back. But the Romans now came and crushed that revolt. During this time, there was what's called brigands, you know, these uh, sort of freedom fighters out in the countryside, pillaging and terrorizing others. They thought they were doing it for God's cause. And so by the time you come to the birth of Jesus, you have to understand Israel is really a hotbed of revolution, of strife, of difficulty, of oppression. That's what formed the Jewish mind. We see the movies of Jesus and the stories there in, in the Holy Land, and it looks like all the Jews do is walk around and discuss the finer points of the law as they enjoy their lives. It wasn't anything like that at all. It was a very difficult time in their lives. Well, as you come now from Herod, you come forward, you have the Romans in control still, and even greater oppression. Herod dies, his sons take over. Archelaus in Judea is eventually run out when Jesus is about 14 years old. And so the Romans come and control Judea and Jerusalem when Jesus is a young man. But Herod and others were at this time, and the others, trying to build up the cities. Now, a city called Sepphoris was destroyed under the rebellion uh, of uh, six, uh, 4 BC. And they wanted to rebuild it. And Sepphoris was only a few miles from where Jesus grew up in Capernaum. And undoubtedly, Jesus being what's called in Greek a tecton, somebody who's technical, whether it's a carpenter or technical trade of some kind, Jesus may have been to Sepphoris. And, and when he was a young man in Sepphoris, he would have seen building there, working there, all the Greek plays being put on. Hearing the Greek stories, it was a very secular city. It's strange it's not mentioned in the Gospels, 
But in fact, that was the epitome of the secular world, just miles away from Capernaum where Jesus grew up. So this is psychologically the world in which Jesus grows up in. That's the, 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 uh, the difficulty of this world. Now the second question, what did it mean to be a Jew and what makes one a Jew? And the answer here is that it's all about symbols. What did it mean to be a Jew? It's first about the covenant. If you were a Jew, you kept the covenant. You followed God's covenant, which included the Torah, included the law, included the temple. It included these things. First is the, uh, the, uh, the covenant. Secondly is identity. It was about identifying as a Jew, being a Jew in heart. It was who you were. The Jewish religion was not so much about a certain set of theological beliefs. It was about a lifestyle. And they were told to be, follow this lifestyle. You could tell if somebody was a good Jew or not by how they lived. Did they keep the Sabbath? Did they avoid breaking commandments? Did they follow the rules of purification? That's what made it to be a good Jew. It was about the covenant. And it was about identity. It was also about their memory. It was about the Exodus, reflecting these stories. You sat down with your family all the time and you told stories about God's deliverance. God is going to come for us again. Don't give up hope under the Roman rule. There's still a way out. God is still coming. There's another Exodus coming, another restoration to our land. They have been restored to the land, but they were really exiles in residence. They were exiles in their own land, being oppressed by these foreign nations, by the Romans and all. And so that's what it meant to be a Jew. You held to these things. The first was the temple. The temple was central in the Jewish worldview. It was central in Jerusalem. The maps made at the time had the temple at the center of the map. And then Jerusalem and Israel and everything else around it, they saw the temple as the center of the universe. Then it was the land. The Abrahamic covenant promised them to have this great land. And you see that in Deuteronomy 30. So they were looking to their land. They wanted their land back. It was to be a great people under the Davidic covenant of, of uh, 2 Samuel 7 that they would have a Davidic ruler come back and free them again. So the Jewish people in the time of Jesus were looking for Messiah to liberate them, to set them free. Now, what was life like as a first century Jew? You get something of an idea, I hope now, the picture of what it's like. First of all, there's all sorts of, of uh, social discomb uh, discombobulations. Socially, there's, it's very difficult. <clears throat> there's the oppression that's going on. There's the different factions of Jews, each trying to find their own way out. How are we going to solve this problem? There's the economic oppression. Here's the thing about the temple. It really was everything. It wasn't just a national symbol of religion. It was also the seat of the Jewish government where the high priest sat. It was also the banking institution. Here's how it worked. When you needed money, you might borrow money from the, the temple and have it, but if you didn't pay it back, then the temple would foreclose on you. And it didn't take long before the financial power of the priests in the temple were able to fully exploit the people of Judea all around and all of Israel. And many people lost their lands. And while the Old Testament spoke about jubilee every 50 years, 49, 7 times 7, releasing people from their debts, the temple stopped doing that. And so in the temple, there are these debts. Now, and that's why churches, including ours, if a person's in need of financial assistance, the church gives them money but doesn't lend it to them. Think about this in our world. Let's say you go, and Dale McKinney says, okay, here's $1,000, gives you $1,000. No, you have four weeks to pay it back at 20% interest. But enjoy your money. And so you go out happily that day with your $1,000. Now, week one comes by, two weeks, your church, and Dale says, hi, how are you doing? How are you doing? Week four comes by. What's Dale do? He walks up to you and he says, you got my money? 
Now you don't have your money. What happens now? You better give me the money. Scrayback's going to come after you. And all of a sudden, <laughs> all of a sudden, how do you feel about coming to church anymore knowing that they're, they're after you? To a Jew in ancient Israel, they couldn't see the temple any longer as a place where God dwelt. All they could see was the oppression of it, the financial oppression of it. And so they suffered under that. That's what they recognized. And so Jews everywhere, one way or another, were looking for a way out. Now, if you were an insider in the temple, like the Sadducees, you were happy with this situation. They didn't believe in a life after death, no resurrection. They were happy with their current life as really the banks in whole. In fact, in the year 66, when the Jews revolted, the first thing they did when they took over the temple was go into the temple and burn the debt that was there, the, the, the records of debt. That was so oppressive to them. Imagine if somebody came to you and said, oh, did you hear last night that Citibank and Visa and Discover and your student loans, the whole thing burned up last night. Nobody has a record anymore. You're all free. How wonderful that would be. That's what the Jews did themselves. They burned the temple record of debt. This is the world in which they lived. This is the world in which they, uh, they struggled. So what were the Jewish people looking for? They were looking for a Messiah. They were looking for hope. They were looking for somebody. But here's the thing. They had to diagnose their problem. And what did they diagnose their problem being? It was oppression under the Romans. It was the financial oppression of the temple. It was being subservient to foreign nations. But then Jesus comes along as Messiah. And what's he say? He said, your problem's not the Romans. Your problem is what he calls in Greek, ha satana. Your problem is the Satan. Your problem is evil. What really oppresses you is evil. And so you're looking for a political Messiah to rescue from this mess. Instead, Jesus comes and says, I'm here offering you something else. I'm offering you a way out, but it's not the way you think. It's instead something very different. And that's why as we move further into the gospel stories, as we see, other things are being offered. Jesus offers a different diagnosis. He offers himself as a Messiah as the, in the kingdom. So we can see now what the gospels in John are all about. The Gospels in John are about Jesus coming as a Messiah, offering this people a way out. The Pharisees didn't like it. They saw Jesus' message as counter-revolutionary to their message. Among the Jewish people, there was always this talk of revolt, of finding a way out, of overthrowing the Romans. Jesus was saying, and the Pharisees heard it loud and clear, the Romans aren't the problem, you are. You see, that's why they were after Jesus. Because they knew that he was something different. He was offering a different type of message. He was offering a different type of hope. Something very different. And that's why we see the Gospel of John unfold. The miracle of Cain is a story about the Jewish purification system, the water, being replaced by the wine of Jesus' blood and who he is. He's the Messiah that's going to put aside the temple and what's going on. When we come after in John chapter 2, verse 13... I know in your Bibles there it has a little heading. Most Bibles say it's that Jesus cleanses the temple. Or if it's an NIV, it says Jesus clears the temple. Think about what we said so far. When Jesus goes in the temple precincts and he overthrows the money changers' tables and he drives out the sheep and the doves and all of that, and he, he's not clearing the temple, cleaning it. What happened 30 minutes later? Oh, the money changers picked up their coins again. They put it back in their jars, and the sheep and the birds had all been gathered up again. They went back under business as normal. He didn't cleanse the temple that day. It stayed corrupted. But what Jesus did was condemn the temple. 
He condemned what was going on in this temple, the way it had been abused by the Jewish high priest, chief priest, what was going on there. He was condemning this system. And this was something of a prophetic act. A prophetic act is something of a, like a living parable where a person does something as a demonstration of a bigger point. Overthrowing the money changers' tables was an act where Jesus is saying publicly, I'm condemning what you're doing here as a Jewish temple. Much like Ronald Reagan when he went to the Western, uh, in West Germany and told Gorbachev, tear down this wall. It's a prophetic act saying, I'm standing here as an American saying, the communist system is, is, is devoid of any value. It's going to collapse. So what Jesus is doing is something like that. And so when we come further into the Gospels, we see this conflict with the Pharisees. It's because Jesus is offering something different, a new Messiah, a new way out. And it's not defeating the Romans. That's not their problem. It's their own sin. And so forgiveness of sin comes when the true temple, as we saw in, uh, in prior passages, including chapter uh, 2 and chapter 4, where Ben was last week, Jesus is the true temple. What Jesus is saying is, I am making... This Jewish temple you see, this corrupt facility, I'm making it obsolete. I'm making it redundant. It's no longer necessary. That's why Jesus can break the Sabbath. That's why he can stand there on the Sabbath day and heal a man because he's saying, when the Messiah comes, God's kingdoms come, there's no longer a need for a Sabbath. You see, a Sabbath is set aside for man, but when God is here in the kingdom, that, that is the Sabbath. That is the final Sabbath rest. There's not a special day. All days become special. When Jesus condemns the temple, he's saying, in my body, this is the temple. This is where God intersects with humanity. The temple is that place spatially where God intersects with who we are. So you can think of space. We often, uh, some churches speak of their church as being sacred space, and we don't think of it that way anymore. Uh, we have church here on Sunday and play games on Wednesday. So this is not a sacred space in the same way the Jews often thought of it. God is saying that temple that was built is corrupted space. Jesus is that sacred space, but one day God's kingdom comes, and he will then fill this world with that sacred space. It is in him, and all becomes sacred in him. And then there's a time, the Sabbath day, the Jews kept time. We used to, you know, years ago, always watch what we did on Sundays, making sure we didn't do work on Sundays, and now people go away from that. There used to be uh, blue laws, I think, that kept car sales from Sunday. I don't know if they sell cars on Sundays anymore. They don't still. But other things. But now we have these things. Now we have people playing sports games on Sundays with their kids. That's when they schedule the little leagues. There's no sacred time anymore. The Gospels are about this sacred time that Jesus is creating. And then this material world that we live in, God is saying, will be recreated. A new matter, a new reality happens. That's what these Gospels are about. That's what Jesus' story of this healing is about. I can do this on the Sabbath because I am the Sabbath. That's the message here. Now, think about again D-Day. Think again about what happened as the Allied troops invaded Northern Europe and took on the Third Reich. It took less than a year, but nearly a year, before the Allied troops were able to make their way to Germany before Germany would fall on May 5, 1945. Now, also at the celebrations this week was Angela Merkel, the German president. Do you think now the Germans view the Normandy invasion differently? In the early years after the invasion, they still felt the sting of defeat. About 20 years later, in 1968, 
their children are now old enough to know what their parents had done. And in 1968, there's something of a revolution in Germany where the kids are asking their parents, how could you have done such a thing? And so Germany was very turbulent in the 60s and 70s because of this. But now that generation that lived with the Nazis are dying off. What's left now is a Germany that looks to itself wondering how that could have happened. But what Angela Merkel said, and this goes back to a, a guy, uh, a, a German chancellor in 1985, who said that they now look at Normandy as the German liberation. They too were liberated by the invasion of Normandy by the Allies. They were liberated from the oppression of the Nazis. And so next year on May 5, Germany's going to celebrate the downfall of the Third Reich as their liberation from the evil of the Third Reich. That's what God does in our life. When we know what God has done, we see him now that we were like the Nazis fighting against God, but now we can see ourselves liberated. We're, we too are set free. We're now free from that domain of sin and have been liberated by God. And often when we're saved, we don't see it that way, but as you grow old in the faith, you look back and you see that you too were a rebel against God's kingdom. We weren't much different from the Pharisees. We weren't much different from the Sadducees or those others that exploited people. But now there's liberation in what God has done for us. That's what these Gospels are about. That's what John is getting at. Jesus is that grand new message. Now I'm going to ask Nate to come forward. We're going to sing a song as we're dismissed. But the question we have today is to ask ourselves, are we too a people willing to do what Jesus called for and follow him? Which side of the Normandy beach would we be on? Would we be on the northern side, the England side, preparing to invade with Eisenhower, invade the Normandy beaches to set people free? Or would we be like those on the southern side of the English Channel, fighting against the freedom fighters? Jesus calls us to follow him. That's what this message is about. Stand, if you will. We'll sing now as we dismiss in prayer. Uh, Let's now be people that calls ourselves to follow Jesus. have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. The world behind cross before me, the world behind me, the cross before me, the world behind me, the cross before me, no turning back, no turning back, though none go with me, still I will follow. missed.